0: Hey, this week I would like to uh, mention Melissa with Just the Tipsters podcast for the kind Facebook post and the shout out this month on their podcast. If you can hear my voice right now, give us a five star review or give us a five star. don't have to give a review, just click on the five stars. And uh, give us a, a review on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm working on uh, getting back on schedule on new episodes every week, but through the holidays we're shooting for every two weeks. Now, at the first of the year, we hope to have a uh, a better handle on the social media. Maybe have a Patreon, PayPal, try to have our... Uh, New studio up and uh, situated. We'll be running hopefully on all cylinders. Uh, we'll be just like the top podcast, but with thousands of less listeners. So listen, give us a review, give us a five star rating. Email me at theweeklypodcast at gmail dot com, or on Instagram at theweeklypodcast, or on Facebook at uh, Jeremy Pell, P-E-L-L. No further ado, this is The Weekly Podcast. Footsteps pounding the side of the Virunga Mountains in Rwanda broke the silence around the Karasoka Research Center on the morning of December the 27th, 1985. Swahili screams pierced the misty atmosphere surrounding a tin cabin among the brush. Dan Dan Kufa, they cried. Their shouting roughly translated into Dan's dead. In a remote research facility off the beaten track in East Central Africa, her murder was the last thing anyone expected to happen. But the 53-year-old victim, U.S.-born, Primatologist Diane Fossey had made many enemies while studying mountain gorillas in her self-funded and self-established facility deep in the mountains. Whether she had enemies or not, her death was a devastating loss to those who admired Diane's work, and there were many. Despite her profile as the world's top gorilla expert, her unexplained death in the isolated Rwanda bush has never been solved and most likely never will. Whoever killed her most likely had a vengeance in mind, but to date, no clear motive has been established, nor has justice for her slaying ever been delivered. As a child grown up in San Francisco, California, Dan loved animals. Although she was not naturally gifted with the academia required to study veterinary science, it was clear that she had a talent for gaining the trust of animals. As a young girl, she had a goldfish, but it died. Dan's mother, Catherine, along with her second husband, Richard Price, never permitted the young girl to have another animal. This and many other things caused the tension between Dan and her parents to increase. Catherine uh, had divorced Dan's father, George E. Fosse III, in 1935, when Dan was only three years old, and although he attempted to keep in contact, the letters and pictures exchanged between the pair soon dwindled and eventually ceased. Dan was resentful of her stepfather, and it was clear that there was little love lost between them. Dan was forced to sit in the kitchen with the housekeeper to eat her meals while her mother and new partner sat together at the table, engaged in conversation, having a, a grandioso time. It seems Dan was a victim of a generation that believed that children should be seen and not heard. Growing up was lo- a lonely existence for her, which is why animals became her friends. As a teenager, Diane was taller and slightly more aloof than the rest of the children, but she was a keen horseback rider and aspiring veterinarian despite her parents' inclination to push Diane towards a career in business. Diane failed to grasp enough knowledge of physics and chemistry to become a vet and left the University of California. Instead, she focused on a degree in occupational therapy at San Jose State University. In 1954, Diane graduated and spent several months as an intern for a California hospital before moving to Kentucky in 1955. At the age of 23, she was a director of the Cosair Crippled Home, sorry, Cosair Crippled Children's Hospital Occupational Therapy Department. Her home became a farm on the far outskirts of Louisville, where in her spare time, Diane happily tended to the livestock. But a farmer's life was not what Diane had in mind. In 1963, At the young age of 29, she combined her entire life savings plus a loan from the bank to fund a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Africa, visiting areas in Kenya, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, and the Congo. While on the trip, Diane met with famous anthropologist Louis Leakey and his wife Mary, who were studying African gorillas. The couple took Diane under their wing and brought her along with them during one of their trips to the Virunga Mountains to search for wild gorillas. See, I'm out on that. No thanks. I mean, it takes a special person to have a... I, I love animals. I love my dogs. But I'm not going to the Virunga jungle to study gorillas. But to each his own. So, it was practically love at first sight when that with Diane when she encur- encountered the beast. Writing in her 1983 autobiography, Gorillas in the Mist, immediately I was struck by the physical magnificence of the huge jet-black bodies blended against the green pallet wash of the thick forest foliage. For a diane, it was their individuality combined with the shyness of their behavior that remained the most captivating impression of this first encounter with the greatest of the great apes. With great reluctance, she left Africa and went back to the United States, but, man, she was eager to return and learn more about the gorillas. Back in Kentucky, Dan's trip became the subject of several articles for the Louisville Carrier Journal. Lewis, Leakey, and Dan became face-to-face again and at a lecture in Louisville in 1966. After discussing British primologist and anthropology Jane Goodall's study of chimpanzees, which was in its early years at this stage, Lewis had expressed his belief that studying gorillas in the mountain forest would aid the study of human evolution and invited Dan to partake in a long-term study of the animal she had grown enamored towards in the Rwanda Mountains. Although Dan was not an accredited primologist and had little training for such a project, Lewis had experienced firsthand her iron will and determination, and felt she would be the best person for the job. Diane accepted the offer, and left for Africa. We'll be right back. The Birth of Karasok Now, the first few days of Dan's adventure were spent in I'm going to butcher this, Nombi, Congo before she left for Nairobi in Kenya to build up a supply of materials needed for a jungle camp. Dan lived among the mountain gorillas in the Democratic Republic of the Congo with wildlife photographer Alan Root for several months until the Civil War forced the pair to leave and head for Rwanda. It was on September the 24th, 1967 that Dan's 3,000-meter 3, 3, ascent into uh, Mount Bisco in the Volcanoes National Park brought her to a stop. There she established the Karasok Research Center, naming the camp after the central location between Mount Kirasimbi, which overlooked the camp in the south, and Mount Biscoke, a smaller mountain to the north. And I'm I'm sure I don't have any of these names right, so whatever. As well as a first-hand study of the mountain gorillas, Nan also dedicated her time to obtaining a Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge, Which she obtained in 1976. She became known by the locals as, okay, ready for this? Nairi Machabela. Or, wait a minute, I got it, or simplified a little bit Nairi Machabira. It's the same word, which roughly translates as the woman who lives alone on the mountain. Unlike the beast of the Congo side of Urunga, the gorillas that Diane studied in Rwanda only saw humans as a threat. Diane had her work cut out, integrating herself into their circle, a process that took several years. Slowly but surely, she came to be accepted by the gorillas. Which it takes a hard core bad ass, I'm telling you. First off, to be in the jungle to begin with, and then second off, to be studying these gorillas. Because this is not a safe place. There's nothing safe about it. You'll soon soon see some of the things she has to deal with. And I'm talking, I mean no disrespect, but this was one bad woman. Okay, I, I assure you, I wouldn't want to run into her in a dark alley. So newly hired National Geographic photographer Bob Campbell traveled to Karasok to document Dan's groundbreaking study of the gorillas. Capturing some of the most remarkable moments of the camp's history, the two became lovers. I mean, she's out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of gorillas, and I guess this is the only guy there, so it's pretty obvious they became lovers, I would imagine. Despite the fact he was married. Whoops. Oh, well. Diane's friendship with the primates developed, and she began to name them. One of the young male grillas in particular became her favorite. She named him Digit, having noticed that he had had an injured finger from a trap set by poachers in the forest. The poachers became a primary concern for her, who took it upon herself to safeguard the grillas she came to know and love. Her hostility towards the men became a sore point in the community. While poaching was prohibited in the national park, poaching grillas was a valuable source of income to many families. As poor villagers learned, that there was money to be made in selling gorilla skulls to Westerners, which, I mean, I've never even heard of a market for gorilla skulls to Westerners. <clears throat> I mean, I may be missing this, and there may be this huge market for it, but I, I don't even know what the hell they're talking about here. Now, or selling baby gorillas to zoos for as much as 400000 Now, that can make sense to me, but you got the poachers doing that. Diane grew to despise these poachers. And her fierce protection of the animals and harsh treatment of the men is what ultimately probably ended up costing her her life. She she found these men encroaching on her home and newfound family threatened they just threatened the community that she was trying to build there. Her relationship with Bob also eventually came to an end after almost three years of working together. And the wildlife photographer returned to the U.S. Now, she had made enemies, I'm certain of it, because these poachers were not friendly people. So the local people believed in witchcraft and black magic and sensing an opportunity to spook them Diane would run through the forest in a Halloween mass to spark rumors in the nearby village of witch living in the mountains who preyed on the poachers, cursing them for their efforts to capture wildlife. In 1980, Diane's method of punishing poachers reached a new low. A local magistrate questioned her after she allegedly took the child of a Rwandan man she accused of abducting a baby gorilla. She reported, reportedly offered... The suspect poacher in exchange, his baby for hers. She's, she was reprimanded but avoided further punishment thanks to her efforts to take care of the child, feeding her and keeping her safe until she was returned. And we're talking about a woman in the middle of the jungle with poachers that wouldn't care to cut your head off with a machete and a government that would soon come right behind them and cut your arms and legs off for this woman to do this i'm telling you you I, I, I couldn't even imagine the, the the living condition just it just shows you how much love she had for what she was doing and for the animals themselves so she abducts the child uh she doesn't get in any trouble She had taken care of the child. She wasn't going to hurt the child. So now 1978 seemed to get off to a little rough start for Diane, who was informed on New Year's Day that her beloved Digit had been killed, defending his family from poachers. They had hacked off his head and one of his hands in the aftermath. He was identified by his mutilated Digit and namesake. Six months later, another gorilla named after Diane's uncle, Albert, was killed and piece by piece, Diane's primate family dwindled. Diane had drawn the battle lines against the people who killed her gorillas. She slaughtered their cattle if they wandered on their land. She set fire to the poachers' homes and placed bounties on their heads. After Ditch's death, Diane's hermit-like existence became normality. She continued to drink and smoke in increasing quantities. I'm telling you now, this... That's a tough woman. 1981, the Rwandan government ordered her to leave, banning her until 1983, when she was allowed to return to Karasok. Graduate anthropology student Wayne McGuire, whom you'll soon find out wishes he probably never even went to Rwanda, from the University of Oklahoma, joined Diane's study in July 1985. Desperate to learn about the primate species, Many graduates before him had done the same, only to leave when they became frustrated by the living conditions, or with Diane's increasingly hostile attitude toward both them and the Swahili anti poaching team she employed, which was <clears throat> excuse me, which was funded by the Rwandan government. Christmas was quite an occasion, although Diane liked to celebrate it by inviting camp workers into her home and hosting a feast, complete with gallons of the local banana beer. However, this year she had postponed her uh, usual celebrations until New Year, anticipating the arrival of a delegation of conservationists. She had put up decorations outside her hut. On Christmas Day, invited Wayne and Joseph Muniz for a lamb dinner. The following day, Wayne ventured out into the forest to monitor some of the 70 gorillas the center kept kept tabs on. He returned to Diane that evening to tell her that everything was okay in the centre, and then retreated back to his cabin for the night. Pulled from a sound slumber by Diane's house servant the following morning, Wayne quickly realized something was very, very wrong over in Diane's cabin, which lay only about 90 meters up the mountain on the far edge of the camp. Entering the cabin, Wayne saw Diane laying face up next to her two beds, which she pushed together. Diane's belongings were strewn across the cabin, but it was her body that showed the most violent signs of an attack. When, she, when he reached down to check her vital signs, he saw that her face had been split diagonally from a single machete blow. Only days before her 54th birthday, Diane was dead. We'll be right back. Right, so let's look at, you know, we've, we've done a little bit of the background on Dan and uh, her education, kind of where she had come in contact with the gentleman and kind of how she made her her way to the African jungle and her her love for the gorillas, how that came about. So we've got her going to Africa on the safari. She loves it. The, the gentleman had invited her back and... This is something that, it's, this was her life's work. So she's got her camp set up. And not only is she defending her her land or her center from these poachers, she is fucking going after them. She's killing their cattle. She's kidnapping their kids. She's burning their houses down. She's putting bounties on their head. I mean, this is, I'm telling you, you this is probably some of the most Dang, this is probably the most dangerous area you could be in. You don't have a government. You've got you're in the middle of nowhere, the jungle itself. You couldn't survive it, mixed in with the poachers and a, and a, a corrupt government. She had made some enemies. She had made some enemies because the poachers alone is is motive. But let's look at some of the clues that were found in her cabin. So one of the first things we look at is ignored money or valuables. So her jewelry, passport, handguns, they all all that remained in the cabin. She also had about 1200 in cash and more than 1700 in travelers checks. So burglary wasn't a motive. Also, and uh, clutched in one of her hands was a ball of light-colored hair which Rwandan officials sent off for testing to a laboratory in Paris. And the, the results concluded that it could have only come from a European person. There's so many of those running around in the Rwandan jungle. Had this been Left after a fight with her killer? Or was it placed there? You got the machete. Years before, Diane had confiscated a poacher's machete when uh, she confronted him during his hunt for her beloved gorillas. Now, near her body, the large weapon was left discarded. Her pistol lay close to her body. And of course, recently, they say she'd been sleeping with the weapon close for protection. But inside the gun sat the wrong ammunition. Footprints. A set of bare footprints were left in the mud outside the cabin. An investigator there said a white person doesn't walk barefoot through the forest. Jean. Bosco Buzumari, one of Diane's anti-poaching team, commented during a documentary on her death before adding, but Rwandans, we do that easily. You've also got blood. Despite the violent nature of, of her injuries, there was a significant lack of blood inside her cabin. So had she been slashed across the face after she was killed or had she been attacked elsewhere? and her body put back in the cabin to throw the investigators off. Also, there was a hole in the cabin, right there in the side of the cabin, close to where Diane lay. It was regarded as odd, but it had been made in the only wall in the cabin, not obstructed by any furniture. Now, The victim herself, Diane's body lay next to her bed, and a short distance away, from a slash in the wall. She had been split across the face with a machete. So was this the killing blow? Was this what killed her? We're not sure. Now, before she was killed, she had wrote a letter, and I don't think it was mailed, so weeks after she was found murdered in her cabin, a copy of a letter Diane had drafted to her long-esteemed friend and tropical biologist and conservationist, Ian Redmond, was found among Diane's possessions dated the 24th of November 1985 roughly a month before her death the letter discussed her work at Kerasook and was in the war against the poachers war against the poachers not argument not hey stop stop it but a fucking war against the poachers it read the latest captured poacher is also a gold smuggler between Zaire and Rwanda. I examined his clothing to find a letter between him and his dealer setting up an appointment or setting up, up appointment places for gold deliveries. The letter had never been sent, but merely kept among her paperwork. Now, this suggested that Dan had information on high-ranking individuals that could potentially destroy their reputation. This person might have caused the one or dead. Absolutely, you've got a crooked government. You've got poachers. You've got a jungle. You've got anarchy. So now the investigation. I'm sure there was an amazing investigation done in the jungle of Rwanda. So I mean, that gets back to what I said about Wayne. Poor Wayne. Wayne needs to hightail it out of Rwanda as fast as he can get the hell out of there. Now, despite the urgent nature of, of the events that had unfolded at Karasoga, it took five hours for just word to reach Rwandan police, soldiers, and officials. The message had spread via a radio bulletin from the nearby town of Ruganira. Police were unable to determine a motive for Diane's murder, And although her cabin had been ransacked, nothing of any value or importance had been taken. Her body was removed from the scene and had to be stored in a brewery cellar to keep it cold until she could be buried. No autopsy was performed because there were no coroners in Rwanda. And according to those present in the cabin during the initial police investigation, no solid evidence was recorded by police or any effort made to protect the crime scene. Across the world, news broke of Dan's death. People were stunned. It was as if Mother Teresa had just died. They have Noah. Uh, no, yes. Oh, this woman was compassionate, but Mother Teresa, I'm not sure, because she's burning. I mean, this is a my Mother Teresa might have been bad as hell too. I'm not sure, but I'll promise you right now, I did not. This woman was tough. Well, across America, they thought Mother Teresa had just died. American ecologist and uh, Diane's former colleague, Bill Weber, commented to the press, but the Mother Teresa of the world doesn't get bludgeoned to death in their bedrooms. Diane's anger toward the residents of Rwanda was no secret, and poachers quickly became the number one group of suspects. As she would have wanted, Diane is buried at the carousel next to Digit and Burt. Her gravestone reads, no one loved grillas more. Now, Rwandan officials soon turned their attention to old Wayne McGuire, and after being tipped off in July that the authorities would arrest him for Dan's murder, he fled to the United States aware that the USA and Rwanda did not have an extradition treaty. If I was him, I'd got out that next day. Now, that same month, Rwandan Justice Ministry confirmed that it had issued an international arrest warrant for Wayne. His attorney advised him not to risk defending himself in a Rwandan court, which he claimed practiced his trial by ambush. Emmanuel I, a Rwandan worker Diane had employed and fired months before her death was also questioned by police. He had been a, at home the day of the murder in a nearby village, but investigators in, insisted that trees sat from a banana tree found on his clothing were blood. However, the charges were dropped after he was found hanged in his jail cell at the Gilkondo Police Station in the summer of 86. Yeah. The Rwandan authorities allege that Diane's employees, who they claimed were good friends, had conspired together to kill her. However, after Wayne's colleague pointed out that the two didn't speak a common language well enough to communicate, police insisted I'm sorry, they, police instead turned their focus solely on Wayne. So, you know, whatever, whatever, as the wind may blow, we'll say. A Rwandan tribunal tasked with aiding the investigation into her murder declared that her research partner was responsible for her murder and in absentee conviction they convicted him of murder sentenced him to death by hanging and the verdict was delivered after a 40 minute trial in rugahiri no defense case or phys- it's not funny or physical evidence was presented nor were any witnesses for the defense called Now, Wayne did not go back to Rwanda. I know, I mean, maybe that was something that devastated him, but if he had any sense, he would never even step foot out of the United States. Although Wayne vehemently denied the charges against him from afar, the Rwandan government alleged that Wayne had murdered Diane as part of a plot to steal the manuscript of the sequel to her Gorillas in the Mist book because he was unhappy with his own research. The accused attorney called the trial a farce and alleged that the outcome was foreordained. Speaking to a British newspaper, The Times, he said, I believe, and Wayne believes, that in a fair trial he would be found innocent of all charges. Briefly speaking at a news conference in Los Angeles in August 1986, Wayne denied his involvement in the death of a woman he described as my friend and mentor. He deemed the charges against him outrageous. And his lawyer pointed out that Diane had plenty of enemies who could have wanted her out of the way, including members of the Rwandan government who did not like her resistance to tourists visiting the gorillas, as well as poachers she had humiliated and punished for targeting the gorillas. Despite this information, no action has ever been taken by the country's officials to pursue any other than the prime suspect, Wayne. McGuire. Now, Wayne McGuire is going to end up being the only suspect. Now, Emmanuel Ricanana, they arrested him because they thought the banana sap was blood and uh, took him down to the jail and hung his ass. So, that way, once they killed him, they could just focus on Wayne. So, basically... That's that's going to be the two prime suspects now. That letter had indicated that maybe a high-ranking official in the government was doing some illegal gold trades. You got any poacher? Uh, either the one she burned his house down, killed his cattle, kidnapped his kid. I mean, the, she had taken one and hog-tied him and whipped him with a whip. So the aftermath after all the years, you know, we've looked at. The investigation, which there was none. You look at the court trial, forty minutes, they convicted the guy. Well, thank God he got out of the country. So, you know, Dan's killer walks free thanks to the Rwandan government, alleged lack of interest in the case. Which I don't I'm sure it's lack of interest mixed with they probably don't I mean, they have probably no idea what in the hell's going on. I mean, it took them, well, it just was back in the 80s, but it took them five hours just to get word. So I'm sure that their level of, of intellect on something like this is, is lacking, to say the least. I'm not saying that about every Rwandan. So I'm saying. I'm just talking about at this time, at this place, this situation, and these types of people that she was around being in the middle of the jungle. So... You know, although it's still unsolved, her story has been the subject of many books, films, documentaries. Of course, in 88, Hollywood uh, done her biography, Gorillas in the Mist, for film. Six years later after the movie, the Rwandan genocide destroyed much of the population at the time and also the remains of her cabin, which is just a ruin down the forest. You know, any evidence that could have potentially solved her murder is gone. Only the gorilla graveyard where she and the animals are buried, remain, because the Karasok facility was completely destroyed during the Rwandan Civil War. Its headquarters was relocated to Muzain, where the charity continues to fight to protect the wild animals Diane loves so much. Her legacy continues through the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International, formerly named the Digit Fund, after her slaughtered companion. Her 18-year-old Shoot, 18-year-old, nothing shit. Her 18-year study of mountain gorillas. I can't read my own notes. Terrible. It's still fundamental to primatologists and zoologists today. I mean, the woman done amazing work, and it would almost take one badass individual to do what she done. Much respect. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to Rwanda, period, or the jungle, or any of that. So, her legacy continues. In the autumn of 2017, more than 30 years since her death, her story burst back into television screens. More hundred, more than 170 countries with the National Geographic Channel aired Diane Fossey's Secrets in the Mist. It was a three-part documentary fo- focused on her murder and highlighted how lacking the investigation into her death had been by the Rwandan police, of course. It suggested that her murder had been orchestrated by someone who saw her and her fight to preserve the gorilla species as an obstacle. The documentary discredits the theory that poachers were responsible and suggests suggested Emmanuel had not hanged himself but had been killed to prevent him from revealing the truth about those who killed Dane. But you're going to get documentaries that, I mean, in a case like this, opinions are, are going to be all that you have the people that were closest to him and Wayne found it inconceivable that Wayne played any part in her death accusations Wayne deemed outrageous and uh, you know to this day he denies claiming that he was made a scapegoat for more a more sinister plot rwanda deems that the investigation was is closed but it has been suggested the authorities prosecuted Wayne out of shame for being unable to solve the murder of such a high profile individual According to that documentary, her grand killer may have been a powerful official who became concerned that she had unearthed some ugly truths about gold smuggling and poaching in the national park that she called home and had her killed to prevent its exposure. Hair samples collected from the crime scene and sent to the FBI by the U.S. Embassy in Rwanda are presumed lost, as are the samples sent to Paris laboratories by the Rwandan government. Following his murder conviction, Wayne was forced to change career paths, unable to ever return to Carusoke. It seems impossible that anyone will be convicted.